This sermon is the first of two for me today. I'll be preaching at a wedding in just a few hours. Our youth director, Matthew Wergler, is getting married this afternoon. So if in this message you hear me start to talk about marriage and love and stuff, you'll know that some wires in my brain got crossed. This morning's scripture reading is Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. Acts 16, 11 through 15. It's found on page 136 of the New Testament in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to read along. Again, that's 136. In preparation for indwelling this story, let us pray. Be thou our vision, Spirit of the living God. Amen. We set sail for for Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. This is the gift of God's word. We have just heard a mini travel log from the book of Acts, written by Luke, yeah, the same guy who wrote the third gospel, about a journey he took with the missionary Paul and others. And we'll take a closer look at this story, this wonderful story, filled with uh, nuggets of wisdom that remain relevant for us in our 21st century context. We'll take a closer look at it in just a moment. First, however... I have a quiz for you. It's been a while since I quizzed you due to the fact that the last one didn't go that well. But we'll do better today. I have confidence in you. Now, we've already celebrated the sacrament of baptism this morning, and we're now in a text that will help us reflect on the meaning of this mystery. So, toward this end, a few questions for you about baptism. Question number one. Presbyterians baptize by A, sprinkling, B, pouring, C, immersion, or D, any of the above. How many of you think it's A? Raise your hand. How many of you think it's B, pouring? How many of you think it's C, immersion? 
And how many of you think the correct answer is D? Any of the above. Most hands have gone up. You're off to a good start. That is the correct answer. Any of the above. Typically, Presbyterians baptize by sprinkling. And there's a practical reason for that. We baptize a lot of infants. Not a good idea to immerse infants, right? But we're free. Presbyterian pastors are free to baptize by any mode. We're flexible on the mode of baptism. We'll use any amount of water. Sprinkling, pouring, or immersion. Second question. Presbyterians have believed that the Spirit regenerates us. Regenerates is a theological term that means rebirths. That the Spirit regenerates or rebirths us. A, before our baptism. B, during our baptism. C, after our baptism. Or D, whenever the Spirit wants to. How many of you think it's D? I heard some people say D. D is the correct answer. Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. Westminster Confession of Faith was written in Pres- by Presbyterians uh, in the 1640s. The efficacy or effective power of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. So Presbyterians believe that God is sovereign, including God the Spirit, which means God is free to act freely. And the Holy Spirit is free to uh, do that bit, that regeneration bit, uh, before, during, or after our baptism. Uh, so uh, that's number two. Next question. Presbyterians baptize A, children, B, adults, C, the dead, or D, A, and B. How many of you think it's C? Raise your hand. And if your hand is raised, you need to see me later. <laughs> C is incorrect. The correct answer is D, A and B. We baptize people of any uh, age. Age is irrelevant. Slide number, or excuse me, question number four. This is a true-false question. Presbyterians rebaptize. We'll baptize the same person more than once. True or false? How many of you think that's true? Raise your hand. A few. How many of you think it's false? Raise your hand. More of you. The majority is correct. Presbyterian pastors are not allowed to rebaptize. Rebaptism is verboten. Now, if you have been uh, rebaptized, no worries. You're not going to hell for that. <laughs> Don't panic. <laughs> but Presbyterians traditionally have not believed that a second baptism is necessary. So, uh, many of you have joined this church over the years from other traditions, other Christian traditions, and we have not rebaptized you. We've accepted a Roman Catholic baptism or a Methodist baptism or a Baptist baptism. Uh, that's part of our ecumenical uh, way. We don't uh, require that people be baptized more than once. Last question, another true, false question. Baptism is one of seven sacraments celebrated by Presbyterians. One of seven sacraments celebrated by Presbyterians. How many of you think that is true? And how many of you think that is false? The vast majority of you, that's correct. We celebrate two. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church celebrates seven Presbyterians, and uh, most other, other Protestants, if not all other Protestants, celebrate just two sacraments because it seems to us that Jesus instituted only two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Good job on that quiz. Much better uh, than last time. 
Okay, now that our minds are immersed in the subject of baptism, we are ready to look again at the story, the mini travelogue I read just a few minutes ago. Luke writes, We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. Why do you think God leads Paul and his companions to Philippi? Why this particular city? Well, let's take a look at its location on this map. Paul and Luke and others, they start here in what is today western Turkey, in the city of Troas. They get on a boat or a ship. They sail to the island of Samothrace. Then they continue on to the port city of Neapolis. And then from there, uh, by land, they go to Philippi. So you see that Philippi is uh, located near the coast, for one. And it also has a major east-west thoroughfare uh, going from Greece to Turkey, running right through it. So Philippi is a leading city. It has a large population, and it has a large transient population of people traveling through it from Greece to Turkey or from Turkey to Greece. So this is a strategic place to share the message of Jesus, to share the story of Jesus. God leads Paul and his fellow uh, missionaries to Philippi because Philippi was a strategic location. If people heard the message there, they would take it with them in their travels to other parts of the world. The early church was strategic. Churches today, ours included, would be wise to be strategic as well. Picking up with verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God. Isn't that an interesting description? A worshiper of God. Lydia is not yet a Christian. She's not yet a follower of Jesus. But She's not an atheist either. She believes in God. She has at least a vague belief in a vague God, a vague monotheism. And Paul reaches out specifically to her. This, too, is strategic. Paul doesn't reach out to the hardcore atheist who is closed-minded about God. Paul reaches out to the person who is receptive, who is willing to listen to his message, the gospel. Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. In a single sentence, this verse, verse 14, conveys the radical diversity of the early church. The early church was ethnically diverse. Paul was a Jew. Lydia was probably a Gentile, a non-Jew ethnic diversity. The early church valued both genders equally. 
This story about Lydia is one of many stories in the New Testament that features women prominently. And it was a man's world. This was countercultural. It was a patriarchal culture, uh, the first century Mediterranean world. And the early church sought out socioeconomic diversity. Lydia was most likely a person of means, right? She was a businesswoman who dealt purple cloth, which was a luxury item in that day. Now, it's true, the first Christians were working-class folks. Many of them were even poor. Some of them, Jesus and his first followers, uh, practiced voluntary poverty. That's true. Here, however, we see Paul and his companions crossing the boundary between the poor and the rich. A couple months ago, we spent some time in the book of James, and we came across a passage there that condemned showing favoritism to the rich. That's important to keep in mind. Even then, though, there was no exclusion of the wealthy, but the trajectory of the New Testament is toward inclusion. What does this have to do with baptism? Well, read on with me. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. Notice who's doing what here. God opens Lydia's heart. God evangelizes. God converts. Christians are merely called to share the story of Jesus in word and deed. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household, important detail, this is part of the biblical support for baptizing children, uh, here and earlier in the book of Acts, we hear descriptions of whole households being baptized. And in the first century, the typical first century household would have included some children. When she and her whole household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia could have been content with her vague belief in a vague deity, her vague monotheism, her agnostic seeking. She could have found her identity in something that has an expiration date, in her career, which expires at retirement, or in her earthly citizenship, which expires at death. Instead of finding her identity in her dealing of purple cloth or in her citizenship in Thyatira and the Roman Empire, she receives baptism, which our directory for worship describes as follows. Baptism is the bond of unity in Christ. As they are united with Christ through faith, baptism unites the people of God with each other and with the church of every time and place. Barriers of race, gender, status, and age are to be transcended. Barriers of nationality, history, and practices are to be overcome. That's from our directory for worship, a provocative, a powerful uh, theological statement on baptism. 
baptism has much more uh, to do than with just a pretty ceremony, a beautiful ceremony. It's more than that. It's also about breaking down barriers. It's also about crossing boundaries. Lydia does her part to break down barriers. Her new identity in Christ, coupled with her knowledge of her inclusion in God's family, lead her to show hospitality to Luke, Paul, and their companions. And we should not underestimate the power of hospitality to impact our world. Two things happened to me this past week that made my week. The first was that I was carded. (laughs) That was the first thing that made my week. It's not happening much anymore. The second thing that made my week was an unexpected email. A bit of a backstory, a bit of backstory on this before I read this email to you. Several weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, a man showed up outside the church. I believe it was a Saturday morning. A few of us were here, and we had a conversation with him. He was asking for help. He looked to be quite uh, downtrodden. He told us he was homeless. He was living in his car. He wanted help. Specifically, he wanted permission to sleep in his car in our parking lot for a few days, maybe a couple weeks. He had tried to do so the night before, but the police had shown up and shooed him off, said he couldn't uh, sleep in our parking lot. So I took a business card, one of my business cards, and I wrote a permission note on the back of this business card addressed to the police, uh, giving this gentleman permission to sleep in his car, in our parking lot, for a little while. He emailed me a few days ago. Hi. Praise God, I'm no longer homeless. I live at the Veterans Home in Yountville. I don't have words that adequately express how thankful I am toward you and the entire congregation for helping me the way you did. You've been in my prayers since the day you allowed me to park in the lot at night. You have no idea how much it means. I know you'll be blessed for it if you haven't already. There is so much I'd like to say, and it would take quite a while to say it all. Thank you for helping a brother when it mattered most. It will not be forgotten. Harold Steinmetz. From its birth, the church in Philippi was known for its radical hospitality. For what are we known? What is our identity? Who are we not working hard enough to include? These are questions prompted by reflection on baptism. Are we known throughout our community for our hospitality? If not, for what virtues are we known? Do we know 
Do we have a clear identity? Let's find one. Let's find one in that which lasts.